come out and be a part of that. All those who are able are invited to stand for the reading of the gospel lesson, the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to St. Matthew. When they had come near Jerusalem and had reached Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go into the village ahead of you. And immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, just say this, the Lord needs them and he will send, uh, he will send them immediately. This took place to fulfill what had been spoken through the prophet saying, tell the, the daughter of Zion, look, your king is coming to you humble and mounted on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put their cloaks on them, and he sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road, and the crowds that went ahead of him and that followed were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was in turmoil, asking, Who is this? And the crowds were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever, the gospel of the Lord. You may be seated. It's funny, <clears throat> growing up, I was taught not to say, man, am I lucky. Luck, I was told, was not something that happened in a world where God hung the stars and spun, spun the planets into motion. Because luck assumes that chance is lurking somewhere at the edge of the forest. But many of the people in, in my world believe that God has a plan, that everything that happens the way it happens because God wants it that way. I mean, that was why we were supposed to be comforted when bad things happen. It's all in God's plan. Right? I mean, it wasn't bad luck that your Uncle Eddie stepped in front of a bus. It was all part of God's plan. It wasn't by chance that you woke up on the day of your prom with a zit the size of a small Volkswagen on the end of your nose. I mean, God was busy shaping the world according to some master blueprint to which you had no access. Well, I mean, at least in the, you know, kind of big picture sort of way. Well, I mean, and that boss at work, the one, the one who studied at uh, uh, 
leadership at, uh, studied leadership at the Hitler School for Business Executives. Yeah, that's God too. Well, I mean, that's, that's not God in the, in the sense that your boss is free to act like a, an unreconstituted jerk. God's hand is in putting the two of you together, pairing you up with a PhD in pettiness, self-importance, and passive-aggressive management skills allows God to test you, right? Or it could be God working to make you more patient. Or, or, or it could be God looking to discipline you for cheating your way through high school calculus. I mean, whatever it is, God's got a reason. Now, I don't think, it, it wasn't really my, my parents, I'm pretty sure. But I learned somewhere that luck was something that Christians should not concern themselves with. I mean, Christians don't get lucky, right? They're blessed. Blessed. I mean, see how that works? It's, it sounds way better, doesn't it? I mean, it's just so much more intentional. God's got everything under control. Plus, I mean, being blessed sounds so much more positive. Whereas luck can get, can, 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 and chance, that can be good, that can be bad. Blessing sounds like you, like you hit the jackpot, right? But except, of course, that, you know, Christians don't hit literal jackpots. That would imply games of chance, which Christians don't do. But, you know, but don't worry. I, even ministers understand you're getting a piece of the Powerball. So let's not get too ecclesiastically nitpicky. No, I mean, blessing sounds good, doesn't it? It's a nice family, nice job, voted most likely not to become uh, the person who messes up Twitter by your Harvard MBA class. It's just blessed. Has it ever occurred to you that blessing doesn't seem to work in the opposite direction? I'm sorry to hear about your brother Kevin. What is this, his third stretch at Eddyville for armed robbery? Well, we consider ourselves blessed. I mean, it's weird, our relationship to blessing and how that makes this whole week, especially this Sunday, so odd in the life of the church. I mean, think about what happens in our gospel this morning. But just before our text, Jesus, who's got his ear, uh, ear to the political ground, has just predicted his death for the third time. After exchange with the mother of James and John, who demonstrates uh, a shocking inability to grasp what it is that Jesus is all about by asking Jesus if her boys can be vice president and secretary of state in the new administration. See, after this exchange, Jesus then heals two blind men. Now, the healing of blind men in the gospel here is what we call in literature irony. Jesus heals two blind men in the midst of a bunch of folks who demonstrate their continued blindness to what Jesus is actually all about. The irony becomes more important as we move to the story of the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Now, David Henson uh, suggests that we, what we call the triumphal entry was political theater, or perhaps better, a theater of the absurd. 
According to uh, Henson, in entering into Jerusalem as a conquering general on the back of a colt, Jesus sort of staged the first uh, resistance demonstration. And you might say, well, how do you figure that out? That doesn't sound right. Well, Henson writes that during the Jewish celebration of Passover, there would typically be a Roman military parade to remind the sometimes rowdy and rebellious peasants to know their place and the consequences of a zealous revolt. And this is especially heightened during the season of Passover, a feast that recalls Israel's liberation by God from the hands of a tyrant, right? So they have this big military sort of show on the Passover with the parades and everything uh, on horseback through the front gate and the Roman officers, their client rulers would march and it was all a way of reminding the people at the time just what they had to look forward to if they thought about reenacting the Passover in the current day. Now, Henson suggests that Jesus intended to make sort of a public mockery of this situation, of the government, and that nobody in his audience could have mistaken it as they laid palm fronds on the ground to celebrate his path. His entrance into Jerusalem was kind of a slap in the face to Caesar and his Roman client rulers in the area. Messiah, right? I mean, that's what everybody's looking for. Someone to throw off the bonds of oppression. But Jesus, the subversive, he blows into town looking like something out of a Marx Brothers movie, right? I mean, nobody expects what's happening right in front of their noses. Jesus coming in on a donkey? I mean, this is a, this is a Messiah with a cigar and shoe polish for a mustache. See, in Judea, everybody grew up knowing what Messiah means, right? A Messiah was supposed to be a, a, a political military leader who was anointed by God to rise up and throw off the shackles of foreign oppressors. You know, somebody in the, in, the, in the mold of King David, somebody capable of rallying the troops and reestablishing the Judean pride that had been lost. Something like, um, somebody like the Persian King Cyrus, right, who overthrew the Babylonians and restored Judah to its homeland, paid for the entire, for the temple to be rebuilt. That's who Isaiah calls a Messiah, the anointed one, which is actually that word, or, 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 or thinking about somebody like Mattathias Maccabees, who rose up and overthrow Antiochus IV and the Greeks with this sort of ragged band of freedom fighters, engineering guerrilla raids from the Judean outback. The Maccabean Revolution was less than 200 years prior to Jesus, and that victory, one of the sweetest in the history of God's people, was still fresh on everybody's mind. But now the occupying forces, they're not Babylonian, they're not Greek, they're Roman. What Judea 
needs is another hero, someone to rally the people to kick the Romans and uh, you know, their, 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 their minions out of Palestine. They need, in short, a Messiah who's acquainted with the business end of a sword. So uh, you can imagine when Jesus starts talking about humiliation and death as his vision of messiahship, how it is that so many people completely miss the point. I mean, they 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 don't hear anything he says. They misunderstood him utterly. So by the time that Jesus gets to Jerusalem, I mean, folks are starting to get that whole Maccabean feeling again. And those of who are of a mind, they sort of get whipped up into a frenzy. We can do this. This is our time. Jesus, I mean, you call everybody together. We could make this happen. And you can see why back in chapter 16, when Jesus asked his disciples who people said that he was, and Peter said, well, you're the Messiah, you can see how that might be uh, heard by Peter at the time and why he might rebuke him because what Jesus winds up proposing is to use the messiahship as a position in which you receive violence, not one in which you perpetrate violence. I mean, you can understand why Peter's confused by this. That's not what messiahs do. I mean, you can see why the mother of James and John had She'd been thinking about her son's new positions on the other side of the insurrection. It's got to be something good, right? I mean, people seem to be getting the same sense that something big, something political, something military is just about to happen. So they gather out in the streets as Jesus makes his way into Jerusalem. They're laying branches down on the road. They're shouting, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our ancestor David. I mean, it's, the, 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 the timing is perfect. The, the, the time is ripe for re- revolution. I mean, Jesus even makes his way straight to the temple immediately following our text for this morning. Perfect. I mean, the temple is the ideal place to incite a revolution. I mean, sim- symbolically, it's pitch perfect for that kind of action. So what does he do when he gets there? The crowd's ready to take the streets at his command. They're all wound up. So what does he do? Does he pick up a megaphone and start leading chants? Does he launch into the stirring martial oratory necessary for rallying the strong to war? Or at least for fortifying the weak spirits of the unconvinced? No, what happens when he gets to the temple? Well, Jesus starts kicking over the tables of the payday lenders and calling them thieves. But then Matthew tells us that he starts dispensing a little free health care, healing the blind and the lame, after which he just heads out to Bethany, I, I mean, trying to get to the hotel before happy hour ends up. But that doesn't make any sense, right? I mean, Jesus goes to the temple to start a revolution. Only the revolution Jesus starts doesn't sound very revolutionary. 
It, it, it sounds what, excruciatingly anticlimactic at best, or suicidal at worst. I mean, he's going to throw the overthrow the occupying powers using a baby donkey? Come on. I mean, he's got no army. He's got no generals. He's got no swords. I mean, he's got a handful of guys named Chico, Zeppo, and Harpo. How does he expect to win a war that way? And this is precisely the problem that we run into with blessing. I mean, it's kind of easy to be fooled into thinking that you know, we know what blessing means. It, uh, it means good. It means flourishing. It means conquering, hitting the jackpot, right? When the protesters in the street start shouting, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, well, they know exactly what blessing looks like, don't they? It looks like a thumb in the eye of their Roman overlords. That's right. Heap blessing on him. Crown him king. Get us out of this. But here's the thing, the blessing that they're calling for on Sunday, whether it's military victory or, or just street theater that laughs the Romans off the stage, by Friday, the whole thing looks like a curse, doesn't it? I mean, no matter how you slice it, blessing for Jesus and those who would follow him, it's always kind of a mixed bag. I mean, Easter is certainly a victory, but on Palm Sunday, the path to that victory looks way different. I mean, it starts out filled with glory and songs of heroic deeds. Triumph and military conquest are on everybody's mind. But nobody understands on Palm Sunday that to call for God's blessing is to storm the gates of hell on Good Friday. I mean, it's hard to fathom that Easter victory comes through Good Friday defeat, isn't it? But it is for precisely that reason that those who follow Jesus have the courage to speak on behalf of all those lost causes. Because we're not under the impression that we have to win. I mean, we seek justice and peace for those who've lived so long without it, but not because we believe that somehow we'll stamp out injustice and violence on our own but because we know that the world needs people who follow Jesus to live like he lived, regardless of whether or not we're ever privileged to see the world that we believe God has promised. We heal the sick. We bind up the brokenhearted. We comfort the grieving. We pick up the downtrodden. We fight for justice, not because it makes for good strategy, but because we follow Jesus, which means we're prepared to walk with him down any dark alley that he enters himself in search of those the rest of the world would just as soon leave behind. I mean, we do it because it's right and because God loves us enough not to let us stay where we are because we're the blessed who come in the name of the Lord and because we don't know how to do anything else. Those who follow Jesus have a weird way of looking at blessing. I mean, we see blessing as a struggle, as the courage to fight in the face of almost certain defeat, the determination to look death in the eye without turning tail and running.
Blessing means something different. For those familiar with Jesus. One of my uh, parishioners, when I was pastor down in southeastern Kentucky, she got bone cancer. Uh, Her name was Lorraine, and she was an elder in the church. A dear, dear sweet woman who, after I got a call uh, to the church out of seminary, she would come to my office uh, every so often. She'd hand me a $20 bill, and she'd say, go make a memory. So when she told me that she had cancer, I was distraught. I mean, we we all were, really. How do you come to terms with that kind of sadness, fear? And we were afraid. We didn't want Lorraine to die. I mean, she meant too much to us. Lorraine suffered excruciating pain with this form of cancer. Any kind of movement at all shot lightning bolts through her system. As she neared the end of her journey, she was in the hospital, and she had a heart attack. Nobody knew it until they came into her room and found her lifeless body, where she was, had been awaiting transport to a test. Now, Lorraine didn't have a living will, so they did what they do. They shocked her back to life. They revived her. Only they didn't know how long she'd lain there without oxygen. So the the doctors didn't know what kind of life they were bringing Lorraine back to. It was bad. She never recovered consciousness. She laid in the bed with that sort of permanent grimace on her face. There's just so much pain. That's what I'll remember about it. One afternoon, not too long after that, her daughter Barbara called me. She's worried that her mom was undergoing some changes. She didn't quite understand. Her, her, her breathing was shallow, her feet were cold. And I had just been in, the, in another hospital with a parishioner, an older woman who died with almost the exact same kind of symptoms. And so I raced down to the University of Tennessee Hospital in Knoxville. And when I got in the room, Lorraine, she's still laying there. She's got this grimace of pain on her face. And I sat down. And Barbara was upset, as you can imagine, crying. We didn't really say much. What's there to say? We kind of sat there and listened to the labored breathing. After an hour or so, I, I, I looked up, and for the first time, and I couldn't remember how long, Lorraine's face was relaxed. It didn't have that grimace, that pain etched in the lines on her face. And that's when it happened. That's, that's when I saw death come for Lorraine. On that afternoon in Knoxville, in a hospital room at the University of Tennessee, death tiptoed in 
and scooped her up and left. Her cancer-wracked body finally lay still, her face now calm. And it was such an odd experience. I mean, we'd been so afraid of him for so long, so afraid of what he would take from us, from her. But when he walked through the door of University Hospital, death, like everybody else in that place, was wearing a name tag. I'd never seen death's proper name before, but when he came for Lorraine, the name he wore on his tag was Blessing. And Blessing ushered Lorraine out of her pain and into the glorious presence of the saints in light. Whatever God's plan is, one thing's for certain. If you're blessed to go forth in the name of the Lord, you're not going to make it out of this alive. On the other hand, people who celebrate Easter have a funny way of calling that blessing. Amen. Thanks again for tuning in to the Douglas Boulevard Christian Church Podcast. If you liked what you heard, please rate the podcast on iTunes, retweet the link, or just tell your friends. Godspeed until next time on the Douglas Boulevard Christian Church Podcast.